0: The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff, and I'm the director of advancement and admissions here at the seminary and host of the podcast. I have with me joining by by Zoom, Dr. John Payne. John, thank you for joining me.
1: It's great to be here, Zach.
0: John Payne is a repeat guest here on the podcast, and he is organizing pastor of Christ Church Presbyterian in Charleston, South Carolina. Previously, he served for 10 years as a senior pastor of Grace Presbyterian Church in Douglasville, Georgia. He serves as a trustee on the boards of the Banner of Truth Trust and our sister seminary in Newcastle, England, Westminster Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He is series co-editor of the Lectio Continua Expository Commentary on the New Testament, published by Reformation Heritage Books, and author and editor of several books dealing with Reformed worship and historical theology. He's also, uh, news to me recently, an adjunct professor at Westminster Theological Seminary right outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He and his wife Marla live in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. They have two teenage children, and today I've invited him to speak uh, to us about... Um, the upcoming 2022 GRN National Conference, which is entitled The Church's One Foundation, The Sufficiency of the Gospel in a Secular Age. You see, Dr. Payne, for those of you who are unfamiliar with him, is a longtime executive coordinator of the Gospel Reformation Network and organizer of this particular conference, at which two of our own will be speaking, Jonathan Master and Ian Hamilton, but more on that in a bit. The GRN, if you're unfamiliar with the organization, exists to cultivate healthy Reformed churches in the Presbyterian Church in America. For more information about the GRN, I would refer our listeners to their website, gospelreformation.net, and to previous interviews conducted on this podcast, either with John or with his colleagues, Mel Duncan and Rick Phillips. So, John, I suspect that many of our listeners have seen announcements by email and social media about this year's GRN National Conference It's going to be at the historic Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama on May 4th and 5th, just under a month from today. As the organizer of the conference and executive coordinator of the GRN, you were the primary architect of the theme and speaker selection. So I really want to dig into those things as we build some excitement or at least express our excitement for this upcoming conference. Um, What I want to do over the next few minutes is talk through each selection and give our listeners a glimpse into the rationale for the conference this year even as you set before them what they might expect before we get into that can you describe for us the overall aims of this year's conference program what what do you want attendees to take home from this year's conference
1: the title of the conference which of course is from a well-known hymn the church's one foundation of course last year was also a, a theme from a hymn o church arise a more modern hymn uh, so sticking with the hymn themes, uh, but the, the sufficiency of the gospel in a secular age really is the thrust, uh, Zach, of this, this conference. We want to instill uh, confidence and courage uh, in our ministers, uh, in our ruling elders, and in uh, lay people that come to be a part of this uh, conference. We want to remind them uh, that Christ is building His church that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that if all of the armies of hell with Satan at their head were to come and to try to sift just one of God's elect, he would fail, uh, that we have the tools uh, that are uh, sufficient to proclaim the gospel, uh, to disciple God's people with the gospel, namely uh, the means of grace, word sacraments, and prayer. And we ought to be encouraged in this day where there are many troubles around us in the culture, uh, lots of uh, false and wicked ideologies are are infiltrating our institutions uh, in our in our society, our our schools, our medical systems, our entertainment industries, athletics. It seems that false and wicked ideologies are very much like a tsunami, overwhelming all of our institutions, and not least the church. Uh, it's it's not a surprise that that which influences so dramatically. The institutions of our age would also infiltrate the church in some measure. And so, of course, we're talking about the uh, sexual revolution, uh, the the social justice revolution, uh, really, in general, the moral revolution is taking place in our age. And we want to show that the gospel is sufficient to meet the challenges uh, of our day, uh, to meet the questions that are arising in our day as it concerns human sexuality, as it concerns uh, just humanity and being made in the image of God. Uh, how do we relate to one another from different backgrounds and ethnicities? Uh, that the gospel meets these challenges and answers the questions, uh, the deepest questions that man uh, has always had and that, and that continues to have. Uh, so really that's the overarching thrust is to to instill, to foster, to cultivate confidence and courage in the hearts of God's people as they consider the sufficiency of the gospel, not just the truth of the gospel, but the sufficiency of gospel for life uh, and ministry.
0: I've been preaching through Matthew recently, as I've mentioned on the podcast over the last few episodes, and uh, just got through with the introductory chapters. I'm now in the Sermon on the Mount. But one of the main points that I brought home is that Christ came preaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven. And that is just such an encouraging uh, message to receive because this same gospel is the gospel of reconciliation. It's the gospel of life. It's it's the gospel of the way of wisdom and and all of these other things that we can say about it. And so I'm really looking forward to what promises to be an excellent conference on this theme. You know, looking over the schedule, which you've sent to me uh, in advance of this interview, um, and being a a repeat uh, attendee of the conference, I notice that it's very similar to last year. After breakfast and a brief greeting on Wednesday morning from uh, the... um, Uh, Inimitable Mel Duncan, the conference then opens with Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary's Jonathan L. Master delivering a lecture entitled, You Must Be Born Again, Recovering Proclamation on the New Birth. Now, as I I consider choosing that particular subject for the very first session— I want to ask you this. Is your design to have this lecture be foundational for the rest of the conference, or will this be merely something of an extended wake-up alarm at the beginning of a long day?
1: I hadn't really thought about it being sort of a foundational message, although I think it's, it's, it's apropos as we begin the conference with a, with a clear uh, biblical message on um, the new birth, on regeneration, uh, because of its relationship to uh, sanctification as well. Uh, so I think that there has been a dearth of, of faithful preaching on the new birth uh, in our day. There's a lot of therapeutic preaching. Um, there's a lot of uh, culture, culturally driven preaching and the doctrine of the new birth is, is so countercultural, and it's so counterintuitive. Uh, it really goes against the grain of, um, of human autonomy and of of our false notions of free will. And so uh, you can understand then why um, the the doctrine of the new birth would be held back uh, for a modern church that would not want to offend its hearers. Um, So uh, looking forward to hearing Jonathan's uh, lecture on the new birth, uh, which also gets at the point, uh, Zach, that... There, there's, there's often this uh, emphasis on, on the declarative and, and not the transformative when it comes to our salvation and being brought into union with Christ. And so we know as a, as a dead sinner is brought by grace into union with Christ and given the gift of faith and then receiving all the benefits of that redemption, we know that that individual is made alive in Christ. They die to sin. They're made alive in Christ. But that's not the end of the story. Uh, a, a, a process begins, which our confession calls the work of God's grace, right? It's a transformative work. And so union with Christ isn't simply about being saved from uh, the, the, the penalty of sin, but also uh, saved from the power of sin and unto a life of holiness and growth and fruit bearing. Uh, so I know that, that Jonathan will be getting at uh, these themes within his message which are so important for the church today. Something happens when you're born again. You don't remain a depraved sinner who is wallowing in his sin. You are brought into union with the living, resurrected, ascended, and exalted Lord Jesus Christ. And when a sinner is brought into union with Christ, uh, there is a change that takes place and a process that commences namely called sanctification, progressive sanctification, where we die more and more to sin and live more and more to righteousness. So uh, interestingly, too, this uh, lecture will be vitally connected uh, to a couple of our other lectures, which we'll get to uh, here in this podcast, but are in our conference.
0: I mean, including the very next lecture. It's, and, and when I looked at the schedule, I thought I was discerning a logic to it because of just how neatly everything fits together. Um, but, in our indulgent age, there is no more offensive message than you must be different, you must change, you must be born again and so i 'm glad that we're we 're kicking it off with that because, in addition to to confronting our secular age, our indulgent age with that message of the need for regeneration it 's also giving a lot of hope I think to to those of us who preach this message, but also to those who would hear it it 's hope that you can change. The Lord is sovereign and he's powerful to do it. And that's, that dovetails then into the second lecture, which focuses now on what happens after regeneration, but on sanctification. After Dr. Master gets done with the first session, GRN council member and senior minister of First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, David Strain, will step up into the pulpit for his lecture, which is entitled, quote, he will surely do it. The Love of God and Progressive Sanctification. What an awesome title for a lecture. And, and seeing this duplex theme of God's love and our holiness um, reminds me of what the GRN is all about. Because from the very beginning, these things, this duplex theme, as I've said, has been at the heart of the GRN's mission and vision uh, for many years now. So what are you hoping David will cover specifically or particularly as he returns to these grand themes for this year's conference?
1: It, it is true that at times people think of progressive sanctification in somewhat threatening or negative terms, um, that uh, there's an imposition upon us in terms of the holiness that God calls us to. Uh, there are a lot of themes within uh, today's um, evangelical world, uh, not least in the reformed world, where there seems to be a focus on our messiness uh, being in our brokenness, kind of being the, uh, the goal. us uh, because when you're, when you recognize your messiness and your brokenness, then you're, you're in a place where uh, God meets you. Uh, and, 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 and there's, so there's some truth to that, but that's not where God wants us to stay. Um, shall, shall, we, shall sin abound so that grace may abound. Um, and, and, and Paul Says by, by no means. Um, uh, so in Christ, we have died to sin and we live to righteousness. And, and so this is uh, this salvation that God works in us is um, a salvation rooted in love. Uh, God loves his son, and his son is holy. Uh, God loves us, and he has united us by his sovereign grace to his son in order to make us holy. Uh, And so this basically what I've asked David to do is to show us how uh, God's holiness and God's love are in no way uh, at odds with each other. And that's there's a there's a there's a work of God's free grace, which takes place in the lives of his elect when they are born again, namely progressive sanctification. And it's rooted uh, in God's love for us. If you if God, uh let's put it this way if a, if a, if a man who 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 loved you um, purchased a house for you that was in total disarray, complete disarray and uh, every room in the house was a complete disaster area, and he had the full means and the funds to to repair that house but so but he bought the house. Uh, he hardly would leave the house in a terrible condition. And so uh, it would make most sense that if he loved the person he bought the house for, that he would repair every room to the highest standard. Well, here's what God does. He purchases us with the blood of Christ, and he doesn't leave us in disarray. He doesn't, he doesn't leave the rooms of our soul, as it were, uh, un- uh, repaired, uh, a renovation process begins with every person who's brought into union with Christ. And because of God's love for us, he, he begins this reparation, this, 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 um, uh, renovation process, which doesn't always, it never, um, goes as fast as we want it to. It always takes longer than we would prefer because of our remaining indwelling sin But it's a it's a work that he does. And, uh, you know, I was born again um, 30 years ago, uh, over 30 years ago at at Clemson University. And, um, you know, as I look back on my life, I I see that the Lord has been at work in me and and he's 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 done a, a work of grace in me. And while there are still rough edges and remaining sin that must be mortified and killed, I can look back and say, "Yes, the Lord has matured me and grown me, and uh, that's a, that's all of grace." But this is what He does because He's a God of love, and so we hope to to communicate that. That's it's a it's a it's a wonderful thing and and a, and a hopeful thing that because God loves us, He uh, sanctifies us in His Son. And if I could just read um, a verse from Titus, which interestingly, when it speaks of the grace of God, it it, it speaks uh, directly about sanctification. Titus 2, verse 11 and following, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So, so the grace of God appears, and what is what does Paul begin to talk about immediately? Sanctification. He says, it train this grace trains us to renounce ungodliness not to shrug our shoulders at it and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us now listen from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then he says to Titus, Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. And so here the grace of God is directly linked to this transformative, sanctifying work of God's uh, grace by his spirit in the lives of uh, of those whom he saves.
0: Last year he gave an excellent lecture on confessional subscription um, but by its very nature, that's not quite as to the heart and <laughs> as, as this particular subject will be, and so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what he'll do with it. Following up on that, the third session then features the GRN's resident ruling elder council member, Mel Duncan, of Second Presbyterian Church here in Greenville, South Carolina. Mel's father was a faithful Second Pres ruling elder who took part in the founding of the PCA, and Mel has followed closely in his father's footsteps. His lecture will surely draw from his own experience, even as he addresses specifically uh, this title, A Noble Task, Enduring Lessons on the Ruling Elder from Samuel Miller. Now, Samuel Miller was the founding faculty member of Old Princeton Seminary. He lived from 1769 to 1850. He's one of my favorite figures of church history and probably my favorite American Presbyterian um, uh, figure, and but there's more that can be said about him. Uh, but really what I want to get at is why are we gleaning lessons from him as we consider specifically the work of the ruling elder? And was this your idea or Mel's idea?
1: This was, this was my idea. Um, but, uh, you know, it was an easy choice uh, to ask Mel to do this because uh, those who know Mel Duncan know that he is a, a faithful ruling elder and he has been for um, for a couple of decades, um, yes, he serves in the same uh, session room that his father did, and so there's kind of a, um, a lovely history there. Mel shared about that a bit back in this last September when he gave his uh, lecture at the uh, the meeting at in Greenville with the GRN last September. And, um, yeah, I, you know, h- how can a book uh, published in 1831 on the ruling elder be relevant for today? Well, that's going to be Mel's uh, task to, to show us how. Uh, of course, Samuel Miller rooted the office of ruling elder um, way back in the, the, the days of Moses and uh, the ruling elders and counselors that were um, raised up to, to take part in the leadership of Israel. Uh, and then also... Um, uh, he, he, of course, looks at the, uh, the biblical warrant for it and, and some testimony throughout the ages. I think Mel's going to help to draw out some helpful lessons for ruling elders today. I, I, you know, from church to church, there's a different emphasis on the training of ruling elders. I've heard everything from, you know, a weekend of training before men are ordained uh, to, you know, six months of training uh for, for men and and, and and kind of a you know big stack of books and heavy exams as as we just went through. We 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 are uh we just this past Sunday after uh five months of training and a stack of books and a 23 page written exam and interviews uh we recommended eight men for elder and deacon to our congregation and uh we had a uh a a, a a vote after the service on Sunday morning and there was not one no vote from the entire congregation on these men uh, the process was thorough we we opened it up to the congregation to uh, to respond uh, to ask questions to get to know these men and uh, by the grace of god uh, he has raised up these men within our flock and so we, 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 we see a big spectrum of how ruling elders are, are trained, how they, if there's ongoing training, and, um, and then also um, what kind of shepherding care is done in the, in the midst of the flock and how, how do we carry that out. So uh, I think Mel's going to touch on some really important subjects that are going to be helpful for ruling elders. So I would just take the time here to say ruling elders, come one, come all. It uh, doesn't matter what kind of a church you're in. It uh, doesn't matter if uh, perhaps your pastor is not uh, keen on the GRN. I would just say, come. Uh, you're going to find that these are these are non-controversial subjects <laughs> um, that you can gain from and learn from and grow from. That we just don't see being um, much emphasized in in the wider church, certainly, but even in uh, the Reformed world, uh, and, and we would like to see them emphasized more and more.
0: The next lecture is going to shift gears from the ruling elder to, I guess, the teaching elder, or what is in the title referred to as the gospel minister. We're having Johnny Gibson, professor of Old Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary, deliver this fourth address to, quote, "...pay careful attention." Life and doctrine in the gospel minister. End quote. Now, Dr. Gibson is a minister in the International Presbyterian Church and he's laboring out of bounds at Westminster Seminary. He's not a PCA man, unlike the previous three speakers, but I am particularly looking forward to his message. He spoke a few years ago, I think it was at Twin Lakes Fellowship Fraternal down in Mississippi outside of Jackson. And then he also spoke at probably that same year at the GPTS conference, and both times, Uh, left me with a deeper appreciation for the glory, the goodness, and the holiness of God as I was considering my own calling as a gospel minister and and working through seminary. What in particular are you intending for him to accomplish at this conference?
1: Several years ago, I heard uh, Johnny speak on a subject that has just stuck with me uh, since he gave this particular lecture. It was at a Banner of Truth Ministers Conference several years ago. And um, I've gotten to know Johnny over the years. Uh, he is a, a godly man. He's earnest. Um, he's, a, he's a fantastic scholar. And what he did uh, in this particular lecture several years ago, which this will be an iteration of that same lecture, is, is to unpack the idea that a biblical idea, which I'll, I'll quote some scripture here in a minute, but that it is not simply that... The doctrine a man holds, a minister holds, that influences his life, it is oftentimes his life that influences his doctrine. Now, we have seen this, of course, uh, over the years with the uh, antinomian controversies that have taken place. And we've seen how it can be the case that when a man's uh, life uh, begins to go sideways, then so does his doctrine. And so, what we what we see uh, in the Bible in 1 Timothy chapter 4, for instance, is Paul uh, exhorting Timothy to pay attention to his life and his doctrine. Notice the order there. Pay attention to your life and your doctrine. We have this same kind of emphasis with a slightly different twist on it in Acts chapter 20, when Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock of God, which he has placed under your care, the flock for which Christ died. Uh, and so the, the, the point, the emphasis is pastoral piety is so incredibly important for a number of reasons. He's going to lay out why this has been a major emphasis of the Gospel Reformation Network over the years. As you know, Zach, pastoral piety, you know, I was reading this morning um, that there was a Barna poll this past year that 38 percent of ministers that were polled have considered leave, these are full time ministers have considered leaving the ministry. And, uh, of course, we've had lots of stressors with the COVID-19 and all of the different opinions about controversial subjects and politics and and with the pandemic being politicized and uh, fighting in our churches over masks and and vaccine mandates and, and, and all of these things. Um and pastors are exhausted, and, 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 and pastors, um, there's, there have been a lot of, men just in the past year and a half, I mean, the number of men that have fallen into disrepute because of uh, sin. Um, one of the biggest problems, Zach, in terms of anxiety and stress and men falling into uh, indiscretions is the fact that we are not taking pastoral piety serious enough. Um, are are we, as we were as young Christians, reading our Bibles? I mean, that sounds funny, but are we as pastors sitting down in our favorite chair and having devotions? Not for anybody else, but for our own soul. Are we reading the classic Christian books that we were so hungry for as young Christians? Have we graduated past that? Are we too busy as pastors for the God whom we are Sharing with others and teaching others to love. Have we have we lost our first love? And I think these are questions that uh, that we ought to always be asking ourselves as as ministers. Zach, you'll be interested in this. Um, I was up uh, teaching a Doctor of Ministry class at Westminster, Philadelphia, in January, and I was sitting with some some ministers of some large churches uh, that were connected to the Acts 29 network, and they said they were recently at an Acts 29 Church Planters uh, gathering. And he said, I have never seen so much liquor and alcohol in my life. Men were coming in with boxes of it and cigars and all these things. Now, obviously, we are free as Christians to partake of God's good gifts in moderation. But it used to be that at prayer meetings for young ministers in the old days, according to the old past, people would be bringing in Bibles and prayer books and Puritan paperbacks and getting on their knees and praying with and for one another. And in many realms, um, I would suggest even in some of our own circles, we find that pastoral piety is ebbing more than it's flowing. And the alcohol is actually flowing uh, more than the prayers and the seriousness with which we with which we, we uh, take our own piety as Christian ministers. So I've asked, I've asked uh, Johnny to really unpack uh, those important uh, things for the, for the lives of ministers who, who, who gather.
0: John, like I said, I'm really looking forward to Johnny Gibson's address. I think it's, that might end up being <laughs> worth the cost of the conference as a whole. Moving into the evening sessions of that first day on that Wednesday of the conference on the 4th, you're going to give a call to the attendees uh, right after dinner time. And so you got to hold their attention. Don't shrink back, holy courage and gospel confidence in a secular age. And this looks to me like a bit of the keynote for tying together everything that's going to go into the conference theme. You know, that's a very strong title, Don't shrink back. Um, but I suspect it will be a very on-point message in our present social and denominational climate. So, can you give us a little preview without giving away the entire substance of your message?
1: Of course, uh, the you'll see in a lot of the lecture titles, I've taken um, portions of of scripture uh, to, uh, to 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 kind of give a little insight into what's going to be said. And you know, Paul, and again in Acts twenty, he. He says to, to the elder elders, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And uh, let's just be honest. Uh, we are living in a day where uh, it is becoming easier and easier. And um, uh, uh, there's, there's a greater temptation to shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God and not just some of it, not just that which is more palatable or acceptable to, to the culture. And uh, so, where we are living in an age where it seems that the, as I mentioned at, at the outset of this uh, episode, that the, the, there's a, um, a, a an infiltration of secular, godless ideologies that are uh, have come into our major institutions, our our university systems, now our schools. We have this big news down in Florida of uh, the LGBTQ plus um, activists wanting to bring, um, you know, highly sexualized education to to kindergarten through, through third graders. And, um, and then you have the transgender movement, overwhelming, uh, sports and, you know, an NCAA champion, who's a man who's swimming in a women's event and all of these things are happening. And so it's, it's becoming more and more challenging for pastors to, I think, uh, to speak out clearly and boldly and biblically and definitively about uh, these matters because they are so much on the forefront of what the culture is, is talking about and accepting, right? Uh, so with all this in mind, my hope is just to encourage pastors to not shrink back, to, to uh, renew their commitment to the bold and unashamed proclamation of the gospel, Paul, in the midst of um, as he was in Corinth, writing to the fledgling Roman church, is is saying, "I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for that gospel is the power of God unto salvation." And, and later in Corinthians, he says, I, "We preach the word of the cross, which is the power of God to those who believe." And so, I want to I want to encourage. Um, my fellow ministers and I preach to myself as well because we all we all struggle with the 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 pressures that are coming to us from the culture the the, the idea that we could all be arrested one day for preaching a biblical view of marriage for instance are we going to stop preaching that um, are are we or are we going to be like Shadrach Meshach and Abednego when the music began to play at that that grand party thrown by Nebuchadnezzar with all the cultural elites present, and the majestic orchestra begins to play, and and thousands of people bow down to this 90-foot golden monstrosity. And there are these, I get the chills just thinking about it. There are these three young men, presumably with chest out, erect, standing there, not bowing. And the question is for our day is: are we going to be ministers? who are like those three young men or like Daniel when threatened to be thrown into the lion's den, if he were to continue in his practices of piety, you know, are we going to capitulate? Are we going to say, okay, I'll I'll do this and no more? Or are we going to say, I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God and believe that that counsel, that that gospel is sufficient uh, to save and sanctify God's elect. And we'll do it uh, at the cost of our, even of our very lives. And 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 beyond that, Zach, I want to give a a uh, a picture of what a healthy biblical denomination looks like. I'm I'm I have a sense that we've been trying to find a via media for so long in the PCA. And trying to have a big tent and even the tents getting bigger, I have bigger, I have argued, uh, you know, I believe we've gone from a broad tent to a progressive tent, which means a bigger tent. And we're trying to put all this stuff in. So we need a bigger tent to fit it all in. And and and, and I've argued that publicly and some have disagreed with me. That's fine. But I want to give a, a picture in my lecture of a healthy, biblical warm-hearted, reformed, and confessional denomination that I believe should be the aim of every PCA minister and ruling elder and congregate.
0: I'm looking forward to seeing you set that picture uh, in front of us next month. I think that's going to be extremely valuable to the attendees and also deeply encouraging. Um, I'm reading in God's providence in my, in my daily Bible reading and family worship, going through Joshua and Acts at the same time. And what are these uh, accounts, what are these books of the Bible about? You know, I know Judges is coming, I know First Corinthians is coming, you know, I know difficult texts are coming. But when you're reading Judges and Acts, you're reading about the, the conquest, you're reading about the extension of the kingdom, you're reading about those who had courage to face opponents who were much mightier than they in terms of the world's strength and, and were ridiculing them and all, and, and all of this, and yet were delivered again and again. In Stephen, the martyr's case, delivered into glory. But in the case of Joshua, and the Israelites, delivered into the promised land.
1: Amen. And, and none of them, Zach, were apologizing for God's truth. They were preaching it. They were preaching it with boldness and humility and with love and with courage. And that's the calling on ministers today.
0: That's right. That's right. So I'm really looking forward to to hearing you uh, and sitting under your teaching again, um, and even so soon, because in, felicitously you were here at the uh, GPTS conference and you gave two excellent lectures on, uh, or two excellent addresses, I should say, uh, very sermonic lectures on the church's mission, what the church ought to look like, drawing from history and from and from scripture. and And I'm looking forward to seeing you develop similar themes in just a few weeks. Now, Wednesday evening is going to close with a very interesting uh, message from Dr. Harry Reeder, our host pastor there at Briarwood. He's going to be reflecting on 40 years of ministry in the PCA with a message appropriately titled, Amazing Grace. What are you looking forward to hearing from your longtime mentor and colleague in the ministry? You all have been laboring together for many years in several different contexts, um, you know, per, on a personal note, what are you looking forward to most in this particular address?
1: If I can first say that Harry Reader is one of the greatest men I've ever known. He is he is a man of integrity, a man filled with love for Christ's church, for the people of God, for the lost. I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting with him in restaurants and he's ministering to the, to the waiter and waitress. Um making them laugh before he says something powerful to them about the gospel. Um, he, he is the real deal. And I am so excited about this. This is the only reason I'm coming actually to the Jaron conference is to hear Harry's address. Uh, um, Harry has been serving in the PCA since 1982. And so as, as I asked Harry, as we were knocking around uh, ideas, he, I said, Harry, how long have you been serving in the PCA? He said, well, you know, it's been 40 years. I said, bingo, there is our, <laughs> there's the address for you. Um, and so he agreed to, to do this and he's excited to do it. And, and he's going to draw upon his experience uh, in ministry He's, he's going to reflect upon uh, some of the various trajectories and trends he's seen in the PCA over the years. And, and he's going to draw some lessons from it and encourage us uh, as a denomination, as ministers, as members, um, uh, as it as it concerns God's grace, as it concerns biblical Presbyterianism, as it concerns uh, standing firm and being courageous uh, in this this world that is uh, filled with a lot of evangelical compromise right now.
0: For our listeners who might not be quite as familiar with Harry Reader's uh, background in the PCA and his longtime ministry, he's pastored PCA churches in um, in Florida and in Matthews, North Carolina, and at and, and Birmingham, Alabama. Am I leaving any out?
1: That's it. It was right after my—it um, was in my senior year of college at Clemson that I was attending a Baptist church, and uh, I like to call it a baptismatic church. Um and uh, interestingly, I, I read Mike Horton's "Putting Amazing Back into Grace," and and I tell people I had my my second conversion where I invited Calvin into my heart, and um, and so so after that I began asking you know I was moving up to Charlotte to play pro soccer and uh, I was asking around where should I go to church I'm I think I'm Reformed now and they said oh you need to go to Christ Covenant Church in Matthews North Carolina where Harry Reader. Um, was where he planted that church and was there, I think, for 18 years before going to Briarwood. Uh, so that's where I got to know Harry, and I sat under his ministry for five years there. And um, and he truly was uh, not only a faithful preacher, but a faithful pastor and friend as well. As he as he remains as such in my life.
0: I love that. Thank you, John, for opening up some of that personal background, and and hopefully attendees can can capture a glimpse of that uh, at the GRN conference, which really is just like a warm. Hearted family gathering in many many ways. There's a lot of a lot of hugging and claps on the shoulder and handshakes and and all kinds of just uh, warm expressions of, of fraternal delight in the in the communion of the saints. And so, um, moving now into the second day of the conference, you know it's really just a day and a half long. I mean it's a long day and a half, but the second day of the conference, Thursday morning, will feature a season of prayer in the morning, which is as you've already mentioned. Uh, deeply significant to the overall mission of the GRN. We're doing everything in dependence on prayer Um, and, and the council members are, are, good to remind us of that over and over again. But then we'll have two sessions that morning and a formal panel discussion before being released for lunch and departure. In the opening session, Dr. Ian Hamilton, a trustee here at GPTS, trustee of the Banner of Truth Trust, but also president of Westminster Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Newcastle, England, he will unfold, quote, the history and theological declension of the Church of Scotland from 1560 to 2020—that's a sobering title—but it's one that he has some subject matter expertise in, having served in the Church of Scotland for many, many years before accepting a call to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church in England and Wales. He's—he's going to bring this subject to us, I suspect, to—to uh, um, to set before us some mission critical lessons for us to consider today as we are assaulted by temptations either to compromise with the culture or to retreat from the culture uh, as it becomes increasingly hostile to us. Now, what do you expect Dr. Hamilton to say to those of us in the Presbyterian Church in America as we consider the sad history of the mainline Church of Scotland?
1: I am giving Ian um, all the freedom uh, to say what he wants to say, and I've just asked him as a seasoned, uh, internationally respected, reformed author and minister, of course he is a very dear friend as well, and uh, uh, as as are all of these speakers, uh, men of high integrity, high godliness, love for the church, love for God, uh, love for the lost, uh, commitment to world mission. Um, so so Ian is falls into that uh, as as a man who is. Um, well well respected across various denominational lines and and so i'm i 'm giving him the freedom as as a his as a historian and a, and a theologian to be able to reflect in front of us as Ian so brilliantly does he 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 i 've asked him to reflect for us and in front of us upon uh the the history of the Church of Scotland where things were right, where things went wrong. Of course, he'll um, help us to understand better the great disruption of 1843 with the establishing of the free church. Um, We tend to think of liberalism and compromise coming uh, only in the sort of the modernistic age in the late 20th uh, uh, or or late 19th century, early 20th century. But um, there were problems way back. and so he's going to unpack that for us and, and show us where we can learn um, from what has become, as one author described in his Banner Truth title, uh, a sad departure. Uh, because, we, you know, I, I, I actually worshipped in a Church of Scotland congregation while living in Edinburgh for a couple of years doing postgraduate work there. My wife and I uh, worshipped at a church. We still maintain wonderful, longstanding friendships with uh, many friends from that congregation, um, many of them now in their 80s and and nineties. But it was sad that at one point they had to leave uh, the church of Scotland and they held out for many, many, many years. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, Zach, when you think about the issue of staying or leaving within a denomination where there are a lot, there's lots of fracturing and a lot of disunity. And this is a question that's on the minds of so many in the PCA, right? Should we stay? Or or should we go? And what kind of unity do we even have right now? Um, And so those who are honestly looking at the reality of the sort of condition of the PCA, where you have so many churches that, that, that other churches wouldn't send their members to and vice versa, where there is deep suspicion, where there really is a different approach to ministry and mission, I don't think anybody can argue with that very different applications of the Reformed Confession within churches. The question is then, should we stay or should we go? That was a question that was being asked all the time in the Church of Scotland, right, as there were clear diversions uh, and differences in, in ministry. And so in this particular book, I think it was in this book, A Sad Departure, where the author said, you know, it's kind of like when let's use the example of, of, of infidelity in marriage, let's say there are two marriages and, and a man committed the same adulterous sins against his wife in both cases. And one of the wives decides she's going to continue to love her husband and stay with him and work with him and, and, and just carry on with him for the rest of her life, even with him, perhaps even continuing in this sin and so on and so forth. Then there's another lady who says, no, um, this person has sinned uh, against me in this way. Biblically, I, I can legitimately leave him and divorce him. And so I'm going to do that. Well, you can ask the question, which one is right? Which wife is right? Which, which wife is biblical? The one who divorces her husband or the one who wants to stay with her husband and continue to work and fight for that? Well, the answer is both are right. Within within limits, right? Both are right. And, and so... This is the challenge, I think, that, that Ian is going to help us to understand better, is how are we to think about those who stay, how are we to think about those who might leave or that already have left, as is the case of the Vanguard Presbytery, and uh, how do we think through these things w- while considering some um, historical portraits coming out of the Church of Scotland?
0: That's going to be a fascinating lecture, and it's probably going to build on a broader lecture that Ian recently gave at another conference on um, on just churches in declension, generally speaking. So I'm looking forward to more specificity, probably drawing from his own book published, I think, by Christian Focus, uh, The Erosion of Calvinist Orthodoxy, which tells this story. It's an excellent little volume and treatment of it. But in talking to Dr. Hamilton as a as a conservative confessional Presbyterian, or whatever you want to call us uh i I asked him you know what led you to leave the Church of Scotland and he said, "You know Zach, I didn't leave the Church of Scotland. I accepted a call to a church in Cambridge, England, and so he said, "I'm not a lever, I'm not a seceder. you know use the technical term there um and you know that." Knowing what was going on in the Church of Scotland, even during his tenure many years ago, um, it, it it inspired me with a, a great a great respect for him as a churchman committed to the church in which he was called at the time. You know, lest there was discipline or something that would have forced him out for being orthodox, he wasn't going to leave. And uh, and then he received a call to a different denomination in another part of the UK, and, you know, the rest is history. So I'm looking forward to hearing more from Ian on that theme, and especially as it will inform our own discussions in the PCA. The last session before the panel discussion to cap off the conference is going to be from none other than Dr. Richard D. Phillips of the Second Presbyterian Church of Greenville, speaking on the subject of, quote, recovering biblical leadership in the public worship of God, end quote. Now, this is no secret that this has been something of a hot-button issue across the PCA, but specifically even in our presbytery here in the upstate of South Carolina, uh, where Calvary uh, dealt with this very issue in a cordial discussion and debate that really didn't end with any substantive change one way or the other. Um, but as we even recently have received reports, incredible reports, and even seen recordings online of unordained persons preaching or exhorting in pulpits across the PCA um, and, and doing other things in the worship of, uh, in corporate worship and in leadership, I'm trying to put this as blandly as I can without you know, setting folks off here. But as we're seeing these things, I think Dr. Phillips' lecture, which was assigned beforehand, is going to be very timely and useful to us. But he's not one to pull any punches. And I'm expecting this lecture to be not only instructive, but also deeply convicting and challenging to those of us who will hear it. Now, what kinds of issues in particular do you expect Dr. Phillips to address?
1: Yes, again, I'm giving um, Rick, of course, um, a lot of freedom as to what he wants to, to land on. But I think, as you just mentioned, there are um, issues that are taking place within our own denomination and uh, across the spectrum as it concerns uh, who is leading the worship of God, uh, how the worship of God is led, how the worship of God is, um, is constructed, as it were, in terms of the liturgy. Uh, we live in the, the the era of the the praise band, right um i mean it's it's it it's, it's so obvious it almost doesn't even need to be mentioned i mean it the praise band has taken over the public worship of god in 90% of churches and because of that uh liturgies uh have been uh greatly reduced is a reductionistic liturgy and um and praise band leaders who are not ordained, uh, who most often are not theologically trained, are actually leading public worship services up until the time of the sermon. And so, you know, prayers are being said while instruments are being passed around um, between sets and songs. And, um, and there's, there's just a kind of superficiality to the service rather than a well-thought-out service. Uh, now, I, I understand there can be a an overemphasis on liturgy to the tune of a highly Anglicanized sort of approach, which we're seeing also in the PCA in some quarters. Um, some of those churches have recently left for the Anglican church, which I'm glad if you want to be an Anglican, go be an Anglican. Uh, if you if you want to do that, then, then then put on the collar and go be an Anglican somewhere. Right. Um, but but I do believe that there is something important about a a liturgy that is um, clearly biblical, that's reinforcing and underscoring uh, the great biblical truths of, of the Christian faith. And it's discipling God's people in the context of public worship because public worship is the, the anvil upon which God's people are discipled, right? Through the means of grace. And so the question is, how is it, who is leading it? what is actually being used in the leadership of the church in terms of the liturgy and, 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 in what manner are we doing it? So is there a, a dignity and a, and a reverence to it? Um, you know, and then of course the question, as I've mentioned, who is leading it? Well, the ministers should be leading uh, the worship of God. This is the highest point of the life of the church is in the morning and yes, evening worship on the Lord's day. And as Terry, my friend Terry Johnson once said many, many years ago, if the minister is not, putting together the worship service, and the minister is not leading the worship service, what is the minister being paid to do? (laughs) This This is the part of the highest calling that we have to stand up in front of the church and to give the call to worship, to lead the pastoral, namely pastoral prayer, the great pastoral prayer, which is a means of grace to to administer the Lord's Supper, to read the scripture, the public, Paul tells Timothy to pay attention to the public reading of scripture, to preach the word. We've seen a flurry of women preaching in PCA pulpits. Uh, uh, women are, and unordained men and unordained women are are leading large sections of the worship services all over the PCA. And, and this is a growing concern that we have, because as goes the worship, so goes the church. And so I think Rick's going to Give us an encouraging and challenging call, uh, particularly to ministers and sessions, that the public worship of God is led by those whom God has called to lead God's people in worship. As the apostles led in Acts 2.42 and as Paul exhorted Timothy to lead and Timothy to other uh, ordained men who were called to this service. What
0: I hope and expect Dr. Phillips to do, John, is to give us a go-to resource, because all this is going to be videotaped and and published later, a go-to resource to share with our friends who are encountering Reformed theology and then, hopefully, encounter Reformed worship and ask, why in the world do you do what you do? Why don't you have a guy on guitar a well-meaning you know, brother on guitar or sister at a piano leading us through a, a set of songs leading up to the sermon to set the mood. Why do you do it like this with a guy up front leading everything or, or whatever or what have you? And then we're going to be able to give them Rick's video and say, hey, you might not agree with everything in this, but consider this as a helpful one-stop shop, 40, 45-minute presentation of of why we do what we do. I'll tell you what, for 10 years, I was one of those unordained high school and college student aged guys on a guitar leading a worship service or two every Sunday at my PCUSA turned to EPC congregation up in Philadelphia and I had no idea that what I was doing was at all out of accord with a reformed tradition not that I even knew there was one or scripture or what God desires for worship and if and if a minister had come to me or if somebody had put a video like that in front of me I think I would have been open to it. I mean, certainly when I did encounter these truths upon moving into a PCA church, uh, I warmly embraced them and was excited to be given some instruction in how to worship God according to his word. And so I, I want to encourage our brothers who might might be in a difficult situation and say, hey, this is going to be a great resource, not only for you, but for those in your church who maybe struggle with these ideas and these concepts. I have one young woman in my church right now that um, I, I fully expect to send Rick's uh, video over to her for her to consider as we wrestle through why, why don't we have uh, certain folks doing things up front rather than others. So anyway, moving on from that, again, every single lecture is, is worthy of our attention and excitement, and I think this is going to be a great conference overall as well. You've given a pretty thorough preview of the conference, John, and, and as you've designed it, as its chief architect here, we're in for a rather intense day and a half, as I've already mentioned, and, but I think conference attendees should be excited to enjoy not only strong teaching, but also warm-hearted fellowship and, um, and, and, and just uh, conversations in the hallways, one with another. Uh, what are you most looking forward to, other than the lectures themselves? What are you most looking forward to in the conference, and why should others want to actually be there with the GRN this year?
1: Yeah, I think we've all felt the, the the challenges of the the COVID you know year and a half of of being separated. Now you know here in South Carolina, we we enjoyed freedoms that other states did not. Um, but um, you know, it's just that you cannot replace in person, face to face fellowship. And I think that we are all really longing for that, um, particularly because of what's taken place in the last couple of years. So. Um, I would just encourage um, all of my uh, brothers and sisters in Christ uh, who are uh, interested in these, these lectures as I, th- I think you you should be um, and are looking for warm hearted, um, happy God centered worship and fellowship and, and instruction. Uh, come, come to the JRN conference. Uh, I know everybody can't come. We have, live stream options for that, which I know Zach will unpack here in a few minutes for us, but um, uh, come in person if you can. And um, for seminary students who say, well, I just can't make that work financially and you really want to come, then let us know. And uh, we have scholarships available for that. Zach, I'll also mention that RHB, Reformation Heritage Books, is going to be there and they're going to have an expanded uh, book table. It's going to be outstanding. So uh, make sure you, um, save up your pennies as you come to Birmingham to, uh, to get all the, uh, the latest, uh, Puritan republishing works and various new works that have been published that will just help you and encourage you. We need, we need more doctrine in our day of confusion, not less. And we need to read more solid books. Um, not less. We need to turn off Netflix and, and turn off, um, you know, YouTube TV, uh, and turn off ESPN and, and, and sit in our favorite chair and open up a solid book that will encourage and, uh, and strengthen and uh, enlarge our souls. Um, So that would be my encouragement uh, to you in terms of why you should come. There's going to be food trucks. I think we're going to do food trucks for lunch. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, So, so come on and, and join us
0: to the seminary students that are tuning in, whether you're an RTS student or a Westminster student, Westminster, California, Puritan, Greenville, Mid-America, Knox, Covenant, Birmingham. Uh, i Forgive me if I'm leaving anyone out. It's not intentional at all. I didn't have this written down. But if you're listening and you really want to be there, um, we do have a few volunteer opportunities as well that will get you free admission and some swag and some special FaceTime opportunities with uh, different you know people who are going to be there. And so feel free to to contact the GRN for more information about those volunteer opportunities. All the information about this conference can be found at gospelreformation.net slash events. And that's where you should go to register. That's where you should go to get more info. John, I do want to say this. Um And and wading into some, you know, hot water here. Uh, The GRN is not without controversy in these days in the PCA. And so there, there are probably some folks listening to this who are at odds with the GRN, maybe not in terms of values as they're stated, but in terms of what they perceive you all to be doing in the denomination. Uh, what would you say to those folks? Should they feel welcome to come to this conference? Uh, would they see a beautiful expression of orthodoxy here that they can get behind and and, and benefit from, or should they stay away?
1: We would absolutely invite um, those who uh, currently have a negative outlook on the GRN or a negative perception. Um, I'll just say without any hesitation whatsoever, Um if you are a member of the PCA, a teaching elder, a ruling elder who are on the opposite side of, of issues uh, with the GRN or, or, or with me personally, as you've read things I've written over the years, um, I want to say without hesitation that um, I love you, we love you, we, we, we're not an angry bunch, uh, whatever you've heard. <laughs> it's, just, it's just not true, and um, I, I recall last year a minister from North Carolina coming who all his friends told him not to come. That uh, we were a, an angry bunch. That it's all negative. It's it's don't go, you know. And he said, "We well, you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go and just see for myself." And he said he was. At, he actually emailed me and he told me this story. He said I was so blown away by the warmth, by the the, the robust singing of psalms and hymns, by the. A warm-hearted, clear, passionate uh, lectures and instruction by the various uh, speakers, um, by the fellowship between the lectures and during breaks and coffee times, um, by the, the 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 spread of books by Reformation Heritage books. Um, uh, he just went on and on, and he said everything that I heard it's kind of like the, the, what the, 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 uh, reputation that twin lakes gets right. That twin lakes fellowship are just a bunch of angry guys, uh, down in Mississippi, you know, and, and if you go, you'll just see that that's just not the case at all, not at all. And, um, and those who will be of a different perspective that may be among us, even that may be well-known. I mean, I, I invited, um, you know, Scott Saul's to come be a part of our time to stand conference. Um, And um, he went with a little fear and trepidation and he went out so encouraged. I don't know that he agreed with everything that was said at the conference, but he publicly expressed how warmly he was received and how happy he was uh, to be there among us. And and I appreciate that about Scott. And I know he's um, he writes a lot of books and articles to encourage Unity and 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 brotherly kindness towards one another, and, um, and and he's right. We should be showing that to each other. And sometimes these debates get hot, and we 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 are all trying to to, to clearly communicate that which we believe is true. And and um, but in the end, you know, we um we need to be able to to lovingly uh, disagree with with one another. Um, and and so I, you know, I've already seen some names on the register list that would probably raise some eyebrows like, wow, they're going, you know, but th- that's what we want. And 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 we hope that all would feel uh, absolutely invited to come and to be a part of this uh, this event.
0: It really is a delightful time of fellowship, even if it's not, um, even if not everybody agrees about every little thing that, that gets discussed. But hey, we're men and we're serving in the same denomination. We're all wearing the same jersey, so to speak. And so it's good for us to come together and 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 huddle up and and you know have some team meetings so uh, to put it that way to use that analogy. Now some some of our listeners aren't going to be able to make it uh, in person. Last year uh, I know the GRN made accommodations for those who were trapped in kind of travel restrictions in different states or or had to really think you know hard and hard along about you know can I afford all the time of of being way late or whatever hither and thither. This year that's not as much an issue, but you still might be stuck at home. The best option for that is to organize a watch party at your church. Um, if you're an elder or pastor, you know, take the initiative and go for it. If you're a layperson, make sure you approach your elders or your pastor. And not, don't just take it upon yourself to do something like this. But uh, it's really a good opportunity to to take content that's going to be put out there that's specifically geared to folks in our circles, in park churches, and, um, and, and make it a church event for a day and a half. I, I think last year we had over 30 churches that took advantage of this across several denominations, mostly PCA, but I know there's even at least one CRC church that hosted a watch party. You
1: don't need to see this either as it's either a day and a half watch party together or nothing.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. You can do a, an evening thing.
1: Yeah, that, that sounds like a lot. And, and, and obviously, if people are home, they're going to be having all the normal responsibilities. And so what we did as a church last year, which turned out great, I think there were 75 or 80 people that showed up on Wednesday night. And they watched the two Wednesday night lectures and had dinner in between or something like that or had dinner before and then watched the two. The two I think that's what they did, because you couldn't fit dinner in between lectures. Right? So they had dinner beforehand and then watched the two Wednesday night lectures and kind of made an evening of it. Uh, So if you can't do the whole thing as a watch party, you could you could have an evening Wednesday night event um, that that could be uh, an idea for you.
0: See, this is why I'm just the host and I just tee up the questions and I have guests who are far more creative and experienced than I on the podcast. I should just let them talk because that is a brilliant idea that didn't even occur to me. But that's exactly what you should be doing. And, of course, there are individual live stream options as well, very reasonably priced uh, if you're at home by yourself and, and you just want to benefit uh, from the, the lectures. I think we already have people in every time zone in the United States signed up one way or the other for a live stream option. And, um, and we are going to be, or the GRN will be releasing a map uh, leading up to the event kind of every couple days just showing where the live stream watch parties are happening around the country, as well as uh, you know, showing the locations of individuals—not their exact address or anything—but just where they're where they are and what metropolitan areas they're in. So you can get a feel for just how widespread this is, and um, and just how much of a of a of an of a shared experience it is. Now, finally, I I know that there's something you're going to be rolling out this year that's a little bit different from last year, John. And I want to kind of end on this note. Uh, you're hoping to do 21 days or three weeks of focused prayer for the PCA and for Reformed uh, churches in general leading up to the conference. Do you want to speak on that a little bit?
1: What we want to do is encourage those who are attending the conference, as well as those who um, are not, uh, that that are following the GRN uh, from whatever perspective. We, we all believe as Christians, uh, no matter what a tribe we might be in as it were whether in the pca or outside of the pca uh we agree that we need to be praying and i think you know those who are honest recognize that the the pca is is at a crossroads right now and there's fracturing and uh, there's disunity and um there are disagreements and over very serious issues I, you know i've made the argument recently in, in an article that the pca the the problem really lies in the fact that we've gone from being a, a a broad denomination that had sort of you know disagreements about various issues, but but we could kind of at the end of the day come to terms with the fact that we're not going to see eye to eye on some of these things, and and there's a broadness to the PCA that we're going to kind of embrace and be patient with one another and those kinds of things. But I, my argument in the article is that we've gone from more of a broad um uh, fracturing to a to a progressive one where the, the issues are too high, the stakes are too high to be able to to just continue on and to have friendly disagreements about. Um, and so all that being said, Zach, we believe that we need to be praying. And um so we're gonna be rolling out uh 21 straight days of of you know concentrated prayer where we're gonna ask uh, those who who would like to participate in this, um, to to pray in their personal devotions, to pray in their family worship, and to pray at meal times, uh, and then in 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 their pastoral prayers as well in their churches that they would pray for the PCA, and also as you are led to pray for the work of the Gospel Reformation Network and for this conference in particular that it would be blessed of God, um, that the Lord would use it to encourage to challenge, to, um, uh, to rebuke and correct, uh, to train, uh, and to do all these things that only the Spirit of God can do in our hearts. And, and so 21 days of, of focused prayer, and then we'll have one day, which we'll be announcing, where we'll have a day of prayer and fasting as well. And so it's just a, a, a way that GRN is going to be encouraging that third means of grace uh, for the life of the church uh, leading up to uh, the conference.
0: John, thank you so much for your time. This has been a delightful interview. It's, it's really stoked the fires in my heart to go to this conference and be with the brothers and be seated under good teaching, kind of refill my pastoral tank as I empty it out week by week in preaching and prayer and uh, in pastoring the flock here in my little church plant in upstate South Carolina. But I really appreciate you, appreciate the work of the GRN, and really looking forward to seeing you in just a few weeks' time.
1: Thank you so much, Zach.
0: Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.